and welcome back to the J-Rod Sports Pod with me, James Robson, and me, Ollie Dix. So today we're going to be looking at everything that's happened over the last couple of days in the world of sports, including the Premier League matches that happened late, late last night. The way that we're doing this when we're recording is we're recording the second half of the podcast first, and then we're going to watch the games tonight and then talk about them afterwards. So if we say something in the second half of the podcast which doesn't quite match up to the first half, just got to understand and suck it up because it's one big jumble at the moment we're trying, there are big Thursday night games on <laughs> we're trying to figure out how, how all of this works but let's jump straight into our conversation about the matches that happened last night and what we've got to look forward to this weekend right so as we said earlier we are now recording this bit of the conversation about 80 minutes through City versus Liverpool which seems to be a bit of a foregone conclusion by this point so we're going to start uh, breaking down that as we go along. But we're going to actually kick off today's podcast with a look at J.R. Smith, who has just who signed yesterday. Was it yesterday? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Early mornings of our yesterday, yeah. late of the uh, Wednesday with in America. For, for the Lakers. So what, what kind of uh, compensation is he going to be getting for this? Uh, so funnily, so the, the Cavs let him go in November 2018 and they are still paying him that contract off. So he's already getting 1.5 million from them and the Lakers are only having to pay him just under, just shy of $290,000 for this Orlando bubble period. So it's $290,000 for two months' work or three months' work. Basically, yeah. Not bad. No, not bad. He'll be he'll be wearing number twenty one and he'll be filling the void left by Avery Bradley, who yep. pulled out of the Orlando Bowl because of health concerns for his son. Yeah. When was J.R. Smith last in the league? What and why is he not in the league at the moment? Well, so LeBron left the Cavaliers in that summer of twenty eighteen and the Cavs still had the main like group of everyone that had gone to those four straight finals appearances where they like uh or lost three times to the Warriors and then beat them that that once. Um, and they kept that main group around and Smith was part of that veteran group that they kept around and the Cavs were like, look, we're going to, we still think we can go far in the East, we can do well. And by November, they were pretty sure that they weren't going to be that kind of thing and they just completely flipped it on its head and actually Smith was one of those guys that they decided to let go of so that they could start basically a rebuild um, and so he was last in the M- his last game in the NBA was against the Detroit Pistons in November 2018, um, and we haven't seen Jr. since. But you know, I think all American sports players are quite good at putting videos up of them staying in practice, and yeah. and Jr. is that. And we know Jr. is he's one of those guys that if you met him on a court like 40 years time, he'd still be able to, um, you know shoot a ridiculous three from a ridiculous position so but it's not and like it's not a like for like swap though is it i mean avery bradley was sort of limited on on offense but was primarily there as a defender and and you know he led the league, he led the lakers to a third ranked defensive rating yeah. in the nba and he held uh, he held opponents to 24.6% in threes and 30.1% from more than 15 feet so he was a defensive powerhouse, and J.R. Smith isn't that, is he? No, I mean, you you would argue that Bradley's in that 
like group of elite like lockdown defenders you know he he can he's one of few players who can lock down like your curries your lillards your hardens you know those kinds of guys whereas smith is probably your complete opposite you know you're not going to ask jr smith to do a lot of lockdown defending for you but you also know that in your like half court offense like he is going to space out the floor massively for you and that brings the Lakers offensive weaponry like to another level because you know you're not going to want to leave him alone because you know he he like is a could could drop threes all day long especially when he's open never mind when he's got a man right next to him and so that's going to open everything up for for LeBron and, and AD and do you think this kind of like lockdown quarantine post quarantine sort of bubble thing will play into JR Smith's hands and the fact that like no one's got any tape on him from the last two years no one knows what shape he's in no one really knows how good he is and you're not just going to leave JR Smith out there with some second rate defender on him you're going to commit a really good defensive uh, player to go and run with him essentially all day and and do you think maybe that plays into the that sort of mitigates the loss that Avery Bradley is I think so yeah and it I suppose the hard thing for me is that like I I do think some of the offense that we see in the NBA bubble will be quite ropey you know just teams that are out of, like I know the Lakers like went back to training like in their camps uh, yesterday and so like they're back together now but you still can't expect everyone to be like free flowing. It's it's all natural, and so actually, I think like that's where Jr. will almost come into his own, where he can, you know, we've seen him. He almost enjoys knocking down the harder shots more than he <laughs> knocks down the easy shots. Like he'd rather he'd rather have a contended shot than a than an open one, and I think that that that's where. Jr. will will really enjoy getting back in the NBA, and it's a bit of an audition for him as well. You know, like the best part of two years not in the NBA he's looking that after actually next year will a team want to sign him he's gonna accept like a reduced role probably because he just loves to play in the NBA so also he's one of those people that I mean he gets more out of LeBron like he 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 frees up and allows LeBron to do more which is why I think the the Lakers were so keen to pick him up and the fact that he's got a level of understanding with him already you know he's played in these big time games with LeBron already so into four finals that's yeah. experience that there aren't many guys out there in even the NBA though, that have even though one of the finals he did forget which way he was shooting and yeah, tried to I run mean, and I think way. the hard thing is is that that's almost the last thing that we remember about JR and that's a bit of a reputation that's just stamped on him and actually we don't tend to remind everyone of the ridiculous shots that he makes but it's definitely exciting that the Lakers have now even become a more offensive like potent just yeah all out offense and i think that that's exciting going into this this period and and the the nba is definitely a better place when jr's on the floor okay so let's move on from a team that sort of seems to be making the right moves and good business decisions to a team who potentially aren't doing the same so wigan football club Club have entered administration on wednesday citing financial problems caused by the coronavirus now i don't by any means think this they are going to be the first team no. And the first high-profile team, and then when sorry, the last high-profile team to be hit by this. They are, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg for sports because especially the leagues that haven't been able to finish and don't have the increased revenue income from massive TV deals, they're going to be really hit by this. Um, so what do we? I mean, where were Wigan 
before the lockdown and what why are they in this sort of precarious well, position? Well, so they're, they're currently 14th in the championship and eight points above relegation. But ultimately, the thing to note is that they are probably the the informed team in the championship. They haven't, they're unbeaten in nine, haven't conceded in seven and have won six of those nine games. So, you know, before lockdown, like three weeks before lockdown started, Wigan were looking quite like in trouble quite a bit. Whereas now, actually, we're looking at a Wigan side that, okay, they face a potential 12-point deduction. That might not make a difference if they can continue on the form that they got. And players have come out with tweets being like, look, we're going to up our game now and make sure that we come together and really like try and protect Wigan. Yeah, I mean, I, I, whilst I agree with what the players are saying, and obviously that's a great thing to hear if you're a fan of Wigan, you can't be relying on your players to score enough goals and win enough games to be over you know to overcome a 12 point deduction in a rele- relegation battle and and in some ways this fall well it, it does fall heavily on the, the sort of management staff to find out a way of getting a deal done so that actually the football still remains the number one sort of thing that's been going on at Wigan well it's hard like i i remember a couple of years back where actually i think it was Bolton and you know they hadn't been paid for weeks and it was just a bit like players are fine maybe with the first couple of payments maybe a bit late and it's a bit like tedious with that but actually when people stop getting paid as high profile and as uh, as much money as that is like you start to worry about how long this motivation will last and so what are we kind of looking at going forward for Wigan? Yeah so they're like the, a lot of numbers have been thrown around a lot of there are different reports left, right and centre. The sort of highest that we've seen is that there are 20 suitors who are sort of interested in, in, in buying Wigan. But again, that's that's great, but you can't suddenly open up the floor to highest bids and just sell it to yeah. whoever. You need to do your proper due diligence and you can't do that on 20 potential suitors. So you need to essentially whittle it down to two and then go into negotiations with both of them and then pick the best deal. Exactly. Like I, there were, t- I think. What, I, yeah, I'm gonna completely pick out a number. I'm gonna say about 2012. But was that when Wigan won the FA Cup? Can't remember. Off wow. the top of my but head. Players like uh, Charles and Zogbier yeah. and Figueroa, and you know when they're in their heyday in the Premier League, and actually like Wigan are a household name, like you said at the start, and these are household names that you know f- English football wants to keep a part of, and it's so it's not always about the most money, but actually the tradition that Wigan athletic like hold yeah okay and then from one relegation battle to the next and i'm gonna kick up the level of smugness that <laughs> I'm, I'm going on with here because uh yeah as we said in the football quarantine catch-up series like we both sort of picked a team to sort of back to get out of the relegation battle uh you picked you picked aston villa yeah um which isn't going so well for you uh, and I managed to pick West Ham, who seem to have come out of the quarantine looking like a top four team. Uh, so they beat Chelsea 3-2 with an 89th minute winner. Uh, and they got Newcastle away, Burnley at home, Norwich away, Watford at home, United away, and then Villa at home. There are a couple there who are, you know, United away, okay, They're Newcastle away. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, they, they could still pick up nine points. 
12 points out of their remaining games. Yeah, and I mean, to, like, if I'm being honest, like, I I can understand that you're smug, but I can see that Villa game actually still being quite important. The Watford game and the Villa game are massively crucial in this, like, position. Like, at the moment, in 18th, you've got Villa... Um, with 27 points, Watford in 17th with 28 points, so only a point above them. And then West Ham, your your glorified West Hamer, who you keep saying the informed team in the Premier League, only three points ahead of my Villa. So you know, we could be in a position here where, like like we've said, you know, we didn't expect, and we'll come on to this in a minute, but we didn't expect probably Sheffield United to beat Tottenham today. No, and you know it shows you how how form can quickly turn around. And whilst West Ham are on a great run, you, you're only talking like three points. If they drop points and Watford, Villa, and Bournemouth all win, then you know West Ham are nineteenth. And I think that we've got a massively exciting race here. And I think that Brighton in fifteenth of with thirty three points have been brought back into that battle, haven't they? And we're looking at something quite exciting. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, what. What I would say in in defence of my West Ham is that the games that we think potentially are written on losses, and let's just remember that we put Chelsea in that category. Yeah, no, I agree. But they are both like the Newcastle United games, the Newcastle and United games are both games that I'm like, okay, West Ham are probably going to lose that, and they're both away. Yeah. So that means that the games that are going to be close and the games that are going to really matter. Are the games that you've got at home, like that you 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 pointed out, like Watford and Villa, both at home. Both yeah. of them are coming into London. Both of them are coming into the Olympic Stadium. Like those are going to be big, big games where actually it may well come down to that. Oh, you know, West Ham are just a little bit more comfortable because they're playing at home. Yeah, no, so I think fair. I think whilst it is going to be a really interesting end of the season, I still think that on the balance of it, you know. If Villa are travelling to West Ham on the last day of the season and need a win to stay up, that could that's be the biggest game of the year. <laughs> unbelievable pressure. I might then be willing to put some kind of money on it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, right. So let's leave football for a little bit now. And let's look at a sport that we haven't actually touched on yet. But basically, as we're going along in these podcasts, if, as we said all, all the way through, if there's big news in sports, we're going to cover it. Yeah, and it, it you know, that that's going to be all of the major sports that are out there. So, tennis, the French Open has just come out and said that they're going to have stadiums up to sixty percent full. Max, a maximum of four people will be able to sit together with one seat between groups, because the French are on a one meter plus social distancing. Yeah, uh, that's only on the main courts. And on the other courts, you'll have one seat out of two empty. So when is the tournament starting? Because it is obviously it's meant the clay court season normally falls before the grass court season. Well, yeah, exactly. Like this was supposed to be taking place in like May June time is when we usually get uh, the French Open. So actually, we're looking at like towards the end of September, September the twenty seventh. So it's not even like the the big four. Like it's not one of the Grand Slams that we're actually expecting to see. Like running on schedule at that time of year exactly yeah and so um yeah september the 27th and but actually what's important to note is as we've kind of seen in the uk like guidelines have started to get reduced and then actually put back on so actually the french have come out and said like you know this will be the case they've got some predicted numbers of like how many spectators like they'll have on each days and everything like that but that could soon change if 
you know, second wave or, or anything like that starts to happen and we get a change kind of schedule. And the US Open is coming before the French. Yeah. But they've already said they're going to have no spectators in attendance. And with the way that the coronavirus numbers are looking in the States, I wouldn't be surprised if the US Open actually just has to cancel. Because, I mean, they, Flushing Meadows in New York has... Well, New York has uh, imposed quarantines on other states within the United States. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, you've got a 10-day quarantine if you're flying from Florida up to New York. So they're being really strict because they were the worst hit early on. Um so if if it seems to carry on in the way that it, it is at the moment, I'd be surprised if the US Open keeps going. And the other thing is it's, it's one thing for the organisers to say it's safe yeah, and to say, oh, we're going to put this event on. It's another thing to get buy-in from the players. And like... Well, we saw from, I think Djokovic held his own tournament and actually it seems that anyone, well, he tested positive for coronavirus and it seems anyone, there was a lot of people that came into contact with him who have you know also then gone and tested positive? So actually, we've seen how in tennis it doesn't take a lot for you to suddenly, you know, get a spreaded infection rate, and and you're suddenly you know, yeah, someone could win the U.S. Open because actually the big four don't want to go to it. Are you telling me I need to start dusting off my serve over lockdown <laughs> after your goal today? Absolutely not. Over lockdown coordination. Over lockdown, goes out I was, the over lockdown, I was working on my tennis, and I can say confidently that I managed to get my first serve percentage up to about a good nine it's nine percent in. no it's over no. but it, I spray it I mean it, it, it I don't even know where it's going in hope um, the other thing to the other thing to add with tennis is that and the, and this for me is one of the one of my favorite lockdown stories yeah is that Wimbledon was cancelled and when Wimbledon redid their insurance a couple of years ago they actually had a global pandemic clause in yeah. their insurance contract, which is crazy. And someone was like, "Someone, someone was a like, bonus. someone was like, oh, let's not, let's not take that out. That's a good thing, and it only increases the premium by like a hundred pounds. And they've got a hundred million pound payout on the fact that you know their loss of earnings there for the championships is obscene. Well, it's the first time it's been cancelled as well since the Second World War. Yeah. So you know, just yeah, it's 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 a surprise and. Someone gets a bonus. Somewhere. Yeah, whoever that is, is, is you know the favourite person by everyone at the uh, All England. But it's nice, and and I suppose like you could go a little bit further, and you know French Open have said stadiums will have up to like sixty percent full, which is quite a high number in my opinion, and it's quite interesting. Like we we saw about the NBA, you know, no spectators. NFL, they're quite somehow trying to make it work it seems like that's a focus of theirs and i think that will help with revenue baseball have said no spectators so it does it's interesting to see what sports actually want to get the fans involved and actually others that are kind of staying away from that kind of issue that might occur okay yeah i I completely agree and now so let's jump to the formula one now we're going to have a you know, in the second half of this podcast, we're going to have a quick look at what's coming up in the Formula One. But I just want to touch on something that's come out uh, today that you picked up on. Vettel has been asked I about. Mean, this is all alleged yeah, as well. It's Vettel, all from this, Vettel's this is side. all from Vettel. So Vettel was asked about Ferrari's decision to move on. Yeah, and his side of the story is very different to what is being reported coming out of Ferrari's camp. He's saying there was never a contract offered. I mean, how, uh, as with all these sort of things, there is probably, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of the two. Um, 
But what did Vettel essentially say? So, like you said, Vettel has come out in response to everything that like has been said, and he said that uh, on the phone, uh, Benotto, who's the uh, Ferrari head chief, was just basically called him and said that there was no intention for the team to continue with Vettel as one of their two drivers. Now, in response, that was... It's a Vettel quite a surprise that there was no like even negotiation with it. It was pretty much a look as a team, we've decided to move on from you. Sorry, we'll see you in however many weeks, you know, which is strange. Whereas, you know, what they'd come out and said before was that negotiations just hadn't kind of worked. So, like, it just it's it's strange to see that Ferrari making a decision like that, but at the same time. It adds, like, if Ferrari aren't interested in Vettel, then who is? Yeah. Uh, and, like, so... Obviously, Sam is not here to discuss this with yeah. us. We'll get we'll bring it up again we'll on... We'll bring it up again <laughs> on Monday. Mercedes and Renault are the only realistic teams for Vettel to go to. It seems that way. And reports are coming out that Hamilton will sign an extension and Bottas has been told by the team that they are not interested in signing Vettel. Yeah. Realistically, Renault could afford Vettel, but that seems to be the only kind of place in which they're aligned. Yeah. I think the main thing is that the car isn't competitive enough and Vettel is not going to accept. I mean, like one of the most amazing things is that Kimi Raikkonen has accepted a role at Sauber where he is not winning. Yeah. He's not he's he's trying to, but he's racing in a car that is so off the pace compared to Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull. That he's not in that, you know, in in that conversation, yeah, as getting th- onto the top po- top step of the podium. I think that for him though was like a bit of like a stepping stone down. So he was obviously like two when he, like number two driver when he was at Ferrari. So actually going to a team like that maybe doesn't seem as far as a jump or a step down as it does perhaps for Vettel to go for a team and just, you know, you can just see Vettel just running a car into the ground like. And just going, simply just going as fast as he can, no matter what happens, like going forward. And yeah, like like you said, like Renault can afford Vettel, but that car has got a bit of an audition, I think, for the rest of this year to see like if they can somehow convince him that they are a team that's going to be noteworthy going forward. Yeah, and I think does this change where you think he goes or what you think he does? Because he wants to be in Formula One in twenty twenty one, like that's what he said. But I don't think I don't, honestly I don't think it changes because I think that Renault seat is the only seat that's open for him now, especially with the fact that Bottas seemingly is not going to be leaving Mercedes anytime soon, and Hamilton with Hamilton signing extension. Do you believe Mercedes? Yeah, again because it works so well. Yeah, like it if it ain't broke don't fix it and and <laughs> you know they've got they can pump out world championships with hamilton yeah and clean up second places or third places yeah. with bottas that constructors championship is secure with bottas there isn't it bottas holds the power though in the fact that if he wants to go then he can you know he can get out of mercedes and then free up a seat the most coveted seat essentially in Formula One other than Lewis's. Yeah. At which point 
I think all hell will break loose for people trying to get in that seat. I think though Bottas will do everything. This isn't the year for Bottas to go somewhere. No. This is the year for Bottas to stay where he needs to stay and then actually further down the line he might move somewhere and be a number one driver. But at the moment, with the limited amount of seats available, Bottas doesn't want to get out of that seat, I don't think. No. There's one one thing I want to come to quickly before we look at the football results from tonight. Yeah. So yesterday uh, was the 1st of July and in the States that's known as Bobby Bonilla Day. <laughs> yes. Now we posted about this on, on our Instagram and it's it's something that I don't think many many people over here in the UK are aware of. No. So what is Bobby Bonilla Day? Right, so uh, at some point in the 90s I think it was, Bobby Bonilla signed with the New York Mets and this was at the point where the Baseball. Met- the baseball, yeah, sorry. Yeah. The Mets had literally no money. Every contract that they're like, he's not the only one that the Mets are still pay, are still paying. Like the Mets restructured everybody's contract to be like, right, we won't pay you all this money now, but we'll pay you a small amount every year for the next thirty years, and that's how they just restructured those contracts. So every year on July the first, Bobby Bianilla gets. 1.19 million US dollars um, paid into his bank account for doing absolutely nothing for the New York Mets. And he hasn't played since the early 2000s. No, not at all. Not touched a baseball, I wouldn't imagine. And yeah, and, and again, like this is something, uh, this is something that's so foreign to us over yeah. here because we don't have this kind of, like, I mean, again... The only the, person is Alan Pardew. Yeah, with, the, with that Newcastle contract that we talked about yeah, on Tuesday. Exactly. But... Uh, he, uh, as you sort of mentioned there, he is not alone. Bobby Bobby Bonilla is not alone in this. Like right. there are so many people. We've got a list here of some sort of notable other other people. So as you said, Bobby Bonilla gets paid one point two million from two thousand two thousand thirty five yeah. by the Mets. Yeah, every year. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., who played for the Cincinnati Reds. Gets three point six million every year from two thousand and nine all the way through to twenty twenty four. Yeah, so filthy amounts of. I mean, that's again. yeah, ridiculous. Dion Williams has made fifteen thousand dollars a day for the last five years, which is when he stopped playing basketball. Yeah, I mean, some of these, some of these numbers are crazy. It's it's, it's crazy to comprehend. But you also have to respect agents that have gone in there and simply got the most amount of money that they can possibly get. Here we go. You mentioned okay, so you mentioned that the Mets started doing this in the early two thousand, yeah. late nineties, early two thousands, because they couldn't, they had no money. Daryl Strawberry, one point six four million a year from two thousand and four to twenty thirty three. Yeah. So the Mets have two contracts that they will be. I think these are the only two contracts that the Mets have committed to, to twenty thirty three and beyond. So I think you said Benier was twenty thirty five yeah. and, and Strawberry's twenty thirty three. Yeah, they they pay Brett Saberhagen two hundred fifty grand a year until twenty twenty eight, but that's pe- pittance yeah, yeah. compared. On, but man. it is. It's just crazy, and I think you know, like if anyone's out there as a as a as an athlete and. You know, I think get yourself one of these deals. Like, don't go for those big money lottery tickets. Go for the ones that pay you like a grand a week or the ten thousand yeah. pounds a month. Like, I'm, they're the ones that you want. The last one I'm going to say is is 
Albert Pujols. Yeah, played for the Angels. Yeah, he gets 10 million a year for 10 years after he retires. Crazy. I mean, he's own, the only one on there, not the only one, but like Williams for the Nets was was a decent basketball player in his prime, but definitely robbed the Nets. <laughs> but Puyols is probably one of the only ones on there that I think he's like top five in like home runs ever. And so like he is one of those ones that is, is an elite baseball player and probably deserves somewhat of the money that he's getting. But to say that the rest are are good contracts for teams to be still paying out is is far from the truth. I think the reason this isn't a thing for us over here, and I think the reason that we don't really understand it in the UK is that we don't have salary caps in our main sports. Yeah, and that's why these deals are so smart for the baseball. You know, for baseball especially. I mean, baseball doesn't really have a salary cap, but with like basketball and the NFL with the salary cap that's so hard there's a lot of financial maneuvering to try and get the players that you want to take up as little space in the salary cap as you can and i mean baseball is that the, the, these contracts in baseball are because teams were struggling financially in, at that time but the, the you know that that Brooklyn Nets contract for what was his name Dion uh, Darren Williams Darren Williams that was a salary cap thing, you know. That was they didn't want to. He wanted an, a, a certain amount of money, and they were like, "Well, we can't give that to you right now because that would take us over our salary cap." So, you know, we're just going to pay you a small amount over a long period of time. And they were like, "Yeah, that's fine. That's the same amount of money." And yeah. it, in some ways, it stops him going out and spending loads of it on a massive house in Brooklyn. I mean, the big thing for me is if I ever have kids, I'm going to get them to play baseball. Because Garrett Cole, we spoke about this on the uh, quarantine special uh, with with uh, Copus. He signed a historic deal in baseball, which was nine years and three hundred twenty four million dollars. Yeah, which is like ridiculous, and obviously, like you know, it's the fourth largest deal in the history of baseball, and that is obscene money. And it's just, they're the kind of deals, not that Bonilla kind of made a deal like that, but they're the kind of deals that six years, five years down the line, the Yankees are probably going to want to restructure that. Or if Cole isn't at the Yankees, someone else is going to want to restructure that. And that's where, you know, he could get, be, be getting paid until like 2050 in five years time, but just small amounts of money. Like if he has like elbow surgery next year and it all goes Pete Tong, yeah, <laughs> you got to pay him three hundred million dollars, which is you know an extortionate amount of money. And I think the big thing for me is that, like you said, we don't have salary caps in the UK, but also everything's per week, so it doesn't seem like much money. But if you turned around and everything was per year, like and it's or oh, twenty million, twenty million pounds, or you know thirty-five million pounds, or whatever your Ronaldo's or your Messi's earn, then I think that it seems more extortionate because it would bring it down to like per week like that Darren Williams contract is still only like well still gosh is 105 grand a week yeah but again for doing nothing but like when you compare it then to what Premier League players get obviously they only get what their contract is and not beyond that but it's not extortionate some amount of money in like the Premier League so no. when you look at it per year that's when it really starts yeah. to like become a lot I agree right so let's jump back into football now 
let's start. And there were two big games that we said on on Tuesday that everyone was to look forward to for the middle of the week. And yep. they have actually turned out to be really entertaining games. As Ollie mentioned, I was playing golf this afternoon and my mate Pete, who we were playing with, uh, had uh, he's got a, like a phone stand on his um, <laughs> golf trolley yeah. and he just had his phone playing the Sheffield game because he's a massive Sheffield United fan, lifelong Sheffield United fan. And so whilst he was playing not as great golf as he normally is, he was celebrating on the course because right. <laughs> Sheffield, Sheffield were doing all right. At least they weren't losing. So Sheffield won 3-1 yep. against Spurs. But the Harry Kane equaliser that was disallowed by VAR was the turning point in that game, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, uh, and I think so. And I think there, like in both ge- these games tonight, there were significant turning points where actually the game definitely shifted. And, you know, Spurs had three goals disallowed for not all VAR, but, you know, some offsides or, you know, some fouls that were earlier on and bring that back. But Kane's equaliser being disallowed for... Townsend suddenly being on the floor and the ball kind of hitting his shoulder. You know, I encourage anyone to watch the video and make your own opinion, but I wouldn't have given that as a foul. And, uh, you know, he can't do much when he's on his front and his arm's down by his side and the ball hits, like, the top of his arm. Is that handball? I don't know. Like, VAR is meant to be, like, clear and, and obvious, and I don't think that was clear and obvious. And that I think from that point on it was tough for Spurs to kind of get any momentum going because they felt like, you know, when you feel like the ref is against you, everything seems to go Sheffield United's way and not Spurs' way. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely massive result for Sheffield, though. A huge. I and mean, we've spoken about how actually, like, we spoke, I mentioned them as them and Palace as in the same. They hadn't won since they came back from the quarantine. And actually, now we're looking at them. They're in seventh and, and in a de- decent position to like get a Europa League spot still. Yeah, and I mean, it, what that does is it it brings, you know, they're they're in seventh. They're they're sat above Arsenal. They're two points ahead of Spurs and Burnley, and then one point ahead of Everton. That sure. like uh, a further one point ahead of Everton. Oh, sorry, yeah. So like that seventh to eleventh now. Eleventh now arguably Crystal Palace on 42 points. That's really, really tight. Yeah, and six games remaining. So it's not like there's a lack of points like to remain. Like you, Those teams, you'd expect seventh to be somewhere around the 60-point mark, yeah. you know, come the end of the year. And actually, like, so we've got games remaining and it's just that, that Everton win against Leicester midweek actually now ends up looking really really good yeah. for them and like you, you know like two wins on the bounce here like we saw it with Arsenal two wins on the bounce and you're suddenly in contention for something it seems in the Premier League at the moment which is which is really quite exciting and if you're United and Wolves your main thing is just to stay out of that try try and keep your head above water and try and stay out of that melee of you know because if you let yourself drop a game you know drop a game and draw a game whilst everyone is winning around you. Yeah. Suddenly you're in a position where if you have one more bad day, you could drop three or four places down the table very easily. Well, we could be looking at a completely different table in three games time. To say that there's only eleven points in between third and eleventh is in the Premier League, I think it's quite crazy. You know, you get these kinds of tables at the start of the year when everyone's only paid like six games and 
Bournemouth a third or something like that, you know, like they were a couple of years ago. But to have this like 32 games in is really quite exciting and and it's... It's great for English football. That's why it's the best league in the in the in, in Europe and in the world. Okay, and now onto something that's probably slightly less. It doesn't matter. Is, is that is that the line you're taking? <laughs> yeah, don't you know, care. City have just. Uh, <laughs> what was the final score? Because we started. It was four 0 We started yeah. taping this when it was seventy eight minutes because Oli had sort of stopped watching. Um, Liverpool had. Early chances, didn't they? Yeah, they were, they were in the game early doors. I mean, they were. If you would say that they were the better team to start off with, you had Mane's header that was close, and then Salah on the break hit the post. And if one of those two go in, I think this is a completely different game. But then once Liverpool, you know, just didn't finish their chances, and then Man City got their penalty, I think it then. Man City got the confidence that they needed, you know. Yeah, and then that that Foden goal was class. Yeah, it's. I think we forget how good that Man City team is. Like they can tear any club in the world apart whenever they're all on 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 sync and on song. And and I think it's, you know, yeah, okay, great, good team, but they're not champions. So, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Right, so Oli, looking forward to this weekend. What have we got in in store in the pre- Let's start with the Premier League. Uh, well, I mean, big, big, big time for you and your Arsenal fans. You know, you've you've hit a bit of a uh, a role here where you where you're doing all right, and that will this game this weekend against Wolves will determine whether your season has any more, you know, anything else to do with the Premier League or whether it's just focused on the FA Cup, really. Yeah, I think it's. It's like an exciting time now to be an Arsenal fan. We just signed a couple of players to like long-term deals, and you know we managed to get Saka signed for a long-term deal. It's hard to find out exactly how much that's worth, and yeah. it's less of a conversation with sports over here than it is with uh, like sports in the states. Like every as soon as a contract comes out from an American sport, the first thing is it's like what's the value of it? Yeah, and it's really I, I would say overanalyzed there. Yeah, you like you can talk about it for like ten, fifteen minutes as to whether that player is worth it. Whereas here, actually, wages aren't a massive thing unless they're extortionate, and, yeah. and that's the kind of look at it, like the way you look at it. But no, the good thing for us is that there was a lot of talk of Saka leaving, and he's played pretty well in the last couple of games, and and I think hopefully, I mean that that's a reflection on the fact that the mood at Arsenal is pretty positive at the moment you know if people are signing long-term deals it means oh okay I kind of want to be here for the long term that's a good thing to have around I I wouldn't say it's a massive contract like just off the way like I think Genduzi is on like 40k a week which I mean I mean I would love that money yeah but (laughs) but in terms of football like that's not massive money and I know Saka is probably like on a bit of a better trajectory yeah trajectory but actually just going off originally like i reckon he'll it won't be it might like have a building process to it potentially yeah but i I feel like we've we've managed to sign him when market value is quite low yeah i mean everyone's quite low in the moment in 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 football aren't they yeah and i mean like you know we built on a good victory in uh i say a good victory a very needed victory in the fa cup on saturday with a I think a good victory against Norwich. I mean, it. It's it was, important to beat those teams convincingly, and yeah. that was what the Arsenal 
uh, performance was. Yeah, was and and the positive thing for me was that Aubameyang scored twice and and looked all the way back and just sort of comfortable and 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 you know Arteta's come out this morning saying oh well you know I'm confident that we'll sign him to a long term deal now as an Arsenal fan that makes me very happy. Uh, looking at it from the outside, I mean, do you think there was anywhere in the Premier League that Aubameyang could have gone? Do you want me to talk about Neil Warnock or not? You can if you want. <laughs> I mean, it, reports came out today that Neil Warnock said that Klopp should try and get a reunion with Aubameyang. I mean, to be honest, I don't see that happening and I'd be very surprised. I don't think he'll go to Chelsea. He won't do what Van Persie did and went to Man U. He's not going to go to Man City. So actually, if he does go anywhere, it won't be inside the Premier League. And having been at the only way I see him going back to Germany is to Dortmund. It's not like he's he's off that path of now Dortmund to Bayern that a lot of players make. And maybe Italy might be a nice thing for him, but I, he's not the prolific player that he was four or five years ago where everyone signed him on FIFA because he was just obscene, you know? Yeah. But looking forward, so this Wolves have got a lot to play for, obviously, because Chelsea slipped up against West Ham. Do you think Arsenal beat Wolves, or are you just hopeful, or do you actually really believe that? It's interesting. I think I think in in this, what we've sort of seen in this um, post quarantine spate of games, and you know, I'd be interested to see if it carries on with other sports as well. Is it's quite a, it's quite it's it's quite form based. Like you, you go, you go on sort of waves of momentum, and then you drop off, and you, yeah. you know, potentially have a like Chelsea. Obviously, were riding high after that City game, and then crash pretty heavily down to that West Ham. Oh, game. Yeah, and you compare it back to like before quarantine as well. Like we spoke about Palace and Sheffield United being teams of like who have finished that part of the season in really good form and have come back, and I think they've both lost pretty much all of their games. So it's like a very difficult position to be in to actually judge things because you're judging off two or three games at the moment but I, I I'm with that performance at Norwich I'm I'm more confident that I think we will get a win against Wolves just because I think when you're when you're playing football like that and not to put too much you know emphasis behind signing new contracts but like people don't when when that happens every everyone in a locker room and, and like a changing room they're like you want everyone else to do well and so when stuff like that happens, you're happy for the other guy. And it, it actually kind of brings yeah. people together like that. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't realise is that, that, you know, when someone's happy with the environment they're in, if they sign a long-term contract, that means they're happy where they are. Yeah. And so that's actually something for me that goes, oh, okay, that's a positive and that might be something that we can build on is the fact that at least one of the guys who we see as a key person going forward is going, yep, I'm going to be here for a while. What's exciting is that you are at stage two of being an Arsenal fan. So when we first started doing these podcasts, you were at stage one or stage three slash one, which was you were distraught. Everything was going to rubbish. You were mad at David Luiz. You've now had a couple of good results and you're like, oh, hopeful the Arsenal of old is coming back. <laughs> this Wolves game could turn you back to a oh, disgrace. <laughs> this season's a failure. Yeah, I don't... And like, <laughs> it's so fun to watch that you're going around in this cycle. I don't really know which one. I, I'd say I'm like, am I like a one and a half? Well, whichever way it is, whether it's a one or a three, like I'm like, yeah. like a one and a half. Like I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like, confident you're gonna win the league i wouldn't say that i'm confident (laughs) that we're we're gonna beat wolves i'd say we're hope i'm hopeful that we're gonna beat wolves and 
and I think we're capable of doing that. Uh, I mean, yeah, as you said, that Wolves team has got a lot to play for, but I, I, I don't know. I just don't think they've come out of the quarantine quite as well as they could have, and I don't think... I think they, they they fly under the radar quite a lot. They do. They're a bit like Leicester. Yeah. They're both... They're not part of that big six group that or that traditional big six group. So, actually, you know, they, they their games don't have as much focus. But this one is, is definitely one where, you know, all eyes will be on them. Okay. And, and I, I'm going to throw out another game that I think is going to be a, a pretty interesting one, which is going to be uh, Newcastle-West Ham. I think we can go as far now as saying that West Ham are your second team. <laughs> yeah, West Ham are my second team. And just for those of you that did listen to the uh, football quarantine catch-up series, I've been holding this over Ollie since we recorded that because, as I'm sure you all remember, Ollie said that Villa were going to get out of the relegation zone. These were hopeful predictions. And I said that West Ham were going to get out. And West Ham just seemingly can't lose. I put no money on this and at all. Villa seemingly can't string together more than three passes. So, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, beating Chelsea the other night, that's an absolutely massive result for a team that's in the releg- you know in a relegation battle. Their games, when we looked at the fixtures like we did, we went through. Chelsea was one where we just wrote it off and was like, though, there's no points there. So once you start to get points from games like that, you're in a position where you're like, okay, we can really do this. And they're starting to bring teams back into the fight. So that Brighton only being three points in front of them now. It starts to the more teams you can have involved, like the more hopeful you are that you know you can you can miss out and and stay up. So so yeah, I look. I think that would be a great game. Newcastle, I think like a bit up and down. You know, I mean, got, they did they did trash Bournemouth. Yeah, but also got smashed by uh, City. So you know, like <laughs> which reflects where they are in the table. Yeah, They're above Bournemouth significantly and below Man City, City significantly. Yeah. So it'd be interesting uh, how they do there. But a bit of a Important for Bournemouth, uh, sorry, important for West Ham, not really that important for uh, Newcastle. I, I think say. I think Newcastle probably should hold serve. Yeah, especially with it being at Newcastle. Yeah, well, I mean, St. J- like, but it's still a, it's still the aura of playing there. Yeah, true. Whether it's not fans there, or it's not, not like it's not like you got forty thousand yeah. angry Geordies shouting at you. Exactly. Which I feel like I've had at some time. Yeah, I mean. Um, right, and I'd say the next big thing that we're looking forward to, and we're going to get Sam in at the start of next week to talk about, look look back on all of this when, when it's happened, but is the Formula 1. We got the first round of this shortened Formula 1 season and the first round of a double header in Austria at the Red Bull Ring. Uh, talk to me, Ollie, about Mercedes. They, you, now, they are running a reliability-focused engine at this first race. Yeah, I mean, we talked about in our quarantine... Ca- quarantine series like catch up are special that actually they were formidable at the uh spanish um the barcelona testing and like the one issue that came from that was other cars that were mercedes powered engines had some issues with their reliability and i think that that's what mercedes will you know want to go forward and focus on that we've seen that in the rules actually you can't change parts as much as you would have been able to in a typical formula one season so actually these kinds of things will take uh the focus from from like main racing sometimes yeah i think yeah as we mentioned in in the 
quarantine catch-up series. Like uh, Mercedes have run the most, ran the most laps. Yeah. In Barcelona in testing, I think that will be really important. I just I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the smaller teams come back. Because I don't think you're going to get the flash in the not the flash in the pan because that's a, a bit, no. Like, but you're sort of right. The you're big not... results from from your smaller team. I mean, like McLaren's had to furlough a whole lot of people. Yeah, you know those kind of things. And so, are you going to get those teams coming out as hot as they potentially would be when you hit Austria? And especially for so that's the one thing that I'm apprehensive towards with all this Formula One. Like I'm so excited, but almost like just backing myself off a little bit and kind of just turning around and going, this could be exactly how we expect it to be. And sometimes that's not as exciting. Yeah. I mean, the the, the spanner in the works for me is Ferrari. Yeah. Because obviously there's the sort of the contract discussions and turmoil that sort of happened there. And, you know, will Vettel be coming out with a point to prove that will only shove a B in Leclerc's bonnet as well. Yeah. But the thing for me is that they're not a top-end speed... They haven't designed a top-end speed car. Their car is is better in the, the sort of tighter, narrower, windier like tracks. Your like your Monaco's. Like your, you know, the m- middle section of Baku sort of thing. Yeah. So... Well, they aim to go quickly at home, don't they, at Monza? So, yeah. Which is exactly how they've built the car again. Yeah. I don't... I mean, like... If you have a team, if you have a smaller team that's coming out of the quarantine better than we expect, and a Ferrari that's not as quick round a power circuit where you're basically at full throttle for seventy five percent of the time, could there be an upset there? Do you think? I, as far as upset goes, I can. I just don't see the podium really up for grabs. Like I, I find it hard to, like if you turned around and said to me, Ollie, like the podium's going to be Verstappen. Hamilton and Bottas in any order I wouldn't be surprised like and you know we don't know how uh Albon's going to come out with that Red Bull you know he's going to race I think to you know really really try and kick on and prove a point but then after that that you know I agree that those Ferraris will struggle and so actually then it's any teams that have a Honda unit I think that will then be those teams that are knocking on the door that actually towards the end of the 20 Nineteen twenty season that honda unit was said to be on par with the mercedes power unit and so around a, like the red bull ring like you said a power <clears throat> a power circuit that's something that we actually we can look forward to but it's more how far if they do slip those ferraris will, will slip rather than someone coming in and, yeah. and, and showing off and i think that's the other the other interesting thing about this weekend is as we as we said it's like a power circuit and it's a power uh, it's going to favour those teams that that have got a good power unit. Now, a lot of those lower end teams that might have struggled financially more through the, the lockdown are using Honda power units. So that opportunity to develop more aero packages for different races is going to have been taken away from them. Yeah. But actually, is that going to be mitigated by the fact that their Honda power unit is so good that hopefully... You know, a, a track like Red, the Red Bull Ring is going to be, it's going to be sort of a soft entry back into Formula One. It's not yeah. like they're going to have to be pulling massive Gs, going around corners really, really fast. They are going to be sort of, you know, able to rely on their top end speed to get them into fast 
you know, no, get them like high up on on the grid. I think like one of the important things that actually, like practice and early qualifying for the first time, I think in a while, will be extremely relevant, and like give us so much more information than actually we usually get from it. Usually, practice tends to be a bit of a formality, and you know, you don't really watch qualifying potentially until like that last stage. But actually now we have no idea kind of what kind of teams are in form, how they're running, how a driver's going. So actually we can almost look towards Friday practice and be excited that we are going to learn so much. And that will give us so much more uh, information as to what this weekend might look like. And also I think the other thing is that it's whilst it is the start of a double header in Austria, as we said, like it's two weekends back to back it could very well be two very different weekends because it's the first one of the season. Now, I think when we get to Silverstone and we've got and we got two back-to-back races at Silverstone, it might well be more of, okay, what happens in the first race might be repeated in the second yeah, race. Yeah, I agree. But especially you've got guys kicking rust off, yep. you know, drivers that haven't necessarily... That first corner is just going to be... Yeah. yeah, it's going to be crazy. But yeah. then you've also got a lot of data coming out of these cars that they they haven't had under race under race pre, like race pace and under proper race conditions it's the first time they've had a look yeah i agree at these cars and you do often see that actually you know in a normal season like last year the first race to the last race other than the fact that in the last few years mercedes has been out front the rest of it has changed quite a lot and so i think it could be a, a quite an interesting look at how much development can you do in a week yeah, in no. a hotel in Austria? <laughs> it will be so interesting. And I suppose the last thing for me to say is like, we've said all about Ferrari struggling and all like that. And we expect Mercedes and Red Bull to be way out in front, especially compared to Ferrari. But then, you know, history goes where don't put all your eggs in that basket because Leclerc was on pole last year. So, you know, before that was Mercedes like four times in a row, like Bottas twice, and then before that was Hamilton twice. So actually, the trend is definitely what we're saying. And I'd say we're agreeing with the trend, but a a racer like Leclerc, who was like fighting for everything that he had last year, can can tell you that the form buck sometimes isn't accurate. And the other thing is that it's Red Bull's home race. Yeah. And they, it's almost the, the car that they designed first. Is is their red is their Red Bull Ring Austria yeah. Jeep Austria Grand Prix race? It'd car. be interesting, like if we come out of these first two weekends, and if Mercedes don't pick up a win, like is this the year where Hamilton's under the most pressure than he has been? The rest of the time, he's been able to just go about his business. The Mercedes has been dominant. He's been dominant. Great. Whereas now, actually, there are a lot more question marks over a lot more things going on in the Formula One world thank you very much for listening to that episode of the j-rod sports pod where we looked over everything that's happened in the last couple of days and looked forward to a packed weekend of live sport join us on tuesday when we'll have sam courtier special guest on the formula one looking back at the race in austria this weekend and we'll break down all of the Premier League matches that happen and any other news over the last couple of days. But until then, please make sure that you subscribe, follow us on social media and let us know if there's something you want to hear.